Last week, uh, during our lunchtime Q&A, we had quite a few questions that came up about the sermon that I preached. If you remember, one of the points that I made in that sermon was that oftentimes the children of this world are more shrewd. That is, they are more wise than the children of the kingdom. And really, I want to clarify exactly what I meant when I said that so that we can build a foundation for the message today. And when I said that, I, what I meant was that the gospel of Jesus Christ has real implications for this life. And that it just seems that when the world hears the gospel, the claims of Jesus Christ, the world understands the implications of this message. And unfortunately, so often, those of us in the church seem to not understand those implications. And we don't always recognize the ramifications of the truth that Jesus Christ is king. And so last, last week, one of the things I mentioned is that Herod, as a king, well, he understood very well those ramifications. He understood how the coming of the Messiah was a direct challenge to the unrighteous nature of his own reign. Herod was a king, but he was an unrighteous king. And the ramifications for him were very simple because, you see, if God sets up his own righteous king and if that king has a universal dominion over all the other kings of the earth, then there's simply no way for such an unrighteous kingdom like Herod's, that is the Herodian dynasty, to survive. And so in his desperation, as we saw last week, what did Herod do? That he tried to protect his own dynasty, the future of his own kingdom, by trying to kill that little child who was born king. Now, of course, that was the essence of the message that I preached last week, and it certainly generated quite a bit of discussion during our Q&A session. Uh, but one question came up after the Q&A, and it was a very good and thoughtful question that I want to present here. As someone said, is it possible that maybe Herod did what he did simply because he actually misunderstood the implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ? In other words, maybe Herod misunderstood the nature of the kingdom of Jesus. And so the question is a good one. And in this message, I want to give a reply. I want to spend some time answering this question I think it'll be helpful for all of us, especially as we consider the implications of the birth of our Savior. And so you can see in the order of worship that I've titled this message, A Postmillennial Christmas, uh, because, of course, we hold to the postmillennial position in terms of our eschatology. And the passage that I chose for today is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. It's a passage that I don't think can be any more postmillennial than that. But as we get started today, I want to say that the best place to begin is way back. We have to develop this slowly so that by the time we get to a consideration of Isaiah 9, many, many things are in place. So the best place to begin is with a consideration of a very, very basic concept that I want to give to you and hang on to this throughout the entire message. And that is that the gospel of Jesus Christ did not begin in the New Testament. Now, I know that I say this a lot from this pulpit, but it's very, very important 
because it means that in order for us to understand what Jesus and the New Testament writers and apostles are saying, you really have to connect some dots. You have to connect their statements to the prophecies of the Old Testament. You have to have a backdrop, a background, a context. Uh, Just think about a person who maybe picks up a Bible for the very first time in his life, and he sees that uh, John the Baptist makes an awesome declaration about Jesus. He says that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, that statement would make absolutely no sense to a person without a working knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures. And why is that? Because there's a lot of context missing from that statement. I would say that the same thing is true in terms of the gospel. Uh, When John shows up in the wilderness preaching in Judea, his message is very, very specific, and it fits as the outgrowth of a very particular context. So John shows up and he's preaching, and he doesn't just say, repent and be forgiven for your sins, although that's true. But instead, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And likewise, when Jesus begins his ministry right after his baptism, uh, he does the same thing. Uh, The scripture says that he went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and preaching not just the gospel, but the gospel of the kingdom of God. In other words, just like John, Jesus had a specific message that requires context to understand. Uh, He said the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, therefore, and believe in the gospel. So here what we're looking at in this uh, particular passage uh, is a phrase, the gospel of the kingdom of God. And I would submit to you that the significance of that phrase would be completely lost upon anyone who stepped foot in this congregation today who had never read the Old Testament. The person does not have a working knowledge of the Old Testament prophecies. And so many, many questions would come to their mind. They would ask questions like, what exactly is the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God? Where exactly will this kingdom be located? How far will the authority of this kingdom actually reach? What effect will this kingdom have on all the other kingdoms of this world? And none of those questions, if you think about it carefully, can be answered in a satisfactory way simply by reading through the Gospels for the very first time. So then, the very first thing we want to do today is take a survey of what the Scriptures have to say about this king and about his kingdom. What are those things that have already been revealed in the Word of God? Well, there's a lot of things that have been revealed, so I'm going to be, um, I'm going to choose from among many things that are good and glorious. And some of these are going to be very familiar to us. First of all, we know that when the kingdom of God would come into this world in the person of Jesus Christ, uh, it would bring salvation. It would bring redemption and the forgiveness of sins through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, These things were foretold in the scriptures, and they are intimately connected with the coming of the kingdom of God. Uh, By his death on the cross, Jesus would put away our sins. By his resurrection from the dead, he would acquire the status of justification. 
so that everyone who is united to Jesus Christ by faith also shares in his verdict and in his sentence of being just before God. Now, of course, we also know that the kingdom of God would bring the promise of the Holy Spirit as a result of the finished work of Jesus Christ. So by the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, we have the washing of regeneration, the new birth of the church. And we have the inward renovation and renewal of our own hearts and our own minds so that right now we can all sit here as baptized and regenerated Christians, knowing that we no longer have hearts of stone, but hearts of flesh like we read earlier in the liturgy. We also have this inward desire that's inspired by the Holy Spirit to obey the laws of God. Our nature has been changed and renewed. We have the Holy Spirit, and all of that is part and parcel of the blessings that were to come with the arrival of the kingdom of God. But you see, that's not the whole story. So if we were to stop there, we would absolutely truncate the gospel message. The gospel of the kingdom is not just good news for the individual person, although it is absolutely that. Instead, what we find when we search the scriptures is that the kingdom of God, when it would come, would bring all nations to God. The Bible literally says that all nations will be brought back to the Lord, not just individuals, but whole nations. The Bible says that when the kingdom of God is set up like a mountain in the midst of the earth, the law will go forth from Zion. The kingdom would go out to the entire world. So the picture that the Bible gives us is comprehensive. The kingdom of God is the rule, the reign, the authority of God himself. And right now, that rule and that reign is in the hand of his son, Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that in terms of its power, the kingdom of God will succeed in its mission. The nations will desire to be discipled in God's law. And the result will be that the nations of this world will live in obedience to the faith. I think the best place to begin in developing these things is to go back to Abraham. If you remember, Abraham was a man with no child. Abraham had no child and God came to him and he told him that he would give him a child. And from that child, he would bless Abraham with countless descendants in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, he said to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. Later on in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 5, the Lord comes back to Abraham. He grabs Abraham and takes him outside of his tent and he says, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you can. And then he said, so shall be your descendants. What God is saying to Abraham is that his descendants will be innumerable. They will not be able to be counted. We know, of course, that in Jesus Christ, you and I are numbered among those descendants, right? So if we were to fast forward to the seed of Abraham being Jesus Christ himself, we know how that mission is actually accomplished, right? And we know that you and I are the children of Abraham because we are united to Jesus Christ, who is the seed of Abraham. But that means that the nation that God is talking about in this passage, the nation of Abraham, would be a nation that is made up of many nations. It's a nation 
that is made up of many nations, a kingdom that is made up of many kingdoms. Uh, This is why later on in Genesis chapter 17, God came back to Abraham and he gave him a new name. You remember, he didn't just give Abraham a new name. He also gave Sarah a new name. But Abraham's name used to be Abram. But the Lord said this. He said, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And once again, in Genesis chapter 22, the Lord promises Abraham, blessing, I will bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So anyone can see just from these passages that God is giving Abraham a comprehensive promise He says that Abraham is now the father of many nations. He says that in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He says that he would bring forth kings from Abraham and countless descendants. And of course, once again, we must maintain that this can only happen through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the seed of Abraham. But there's a lot more to see before we actually get to Jesus Christ. Look now with me at the life of Jacob. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob is renamed into Israel, and of course, he's the beginning of the nation that God is building from Abraham's loins, and that's the nation through whom Jesus Christ would come. But in Genesis 49, Jacob is at the end of his life, and he's thinking about the covenant promises that he also has received, not just through his father, but directly from God. So what he does at the end of his life is he gathers together all of his sons, and by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he prophesies to them. He lays his hands upon their heads, and he blesses them as fathers used to do. He gives them the patriarchal blessing, and he gives them the promise of the future for each one of his sons who correspond to the 12 tribes of Israel. But notice in verse 10, Jacob speaks to Judah, who's one of his sons, and Judah would be the son through whom the kingdom would come. And he says to Judah, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the nations. Now we all know that Shiloh refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice that little phrase here, the obedience of the nations. That's really important because it shows the success of Shiloh. Shiloh will be the king in the line of Judah who fulfills this prophecy, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, but to him shall be the obedience of the nations. Now, if we were to take that and fast forward to the writings of the apostle Paul, And we could think about the fact that he employed that very phrase, the obedience of the nations, in his writings. Notice, first of all, in chapter 1 of Romans, Paul says, Through him, that is, through the Lord Jesus Christ, we have received grace and apostleship for what? 
He says, for obedience to the faith among all the nations. So in Paul's mind, he was made an apostle of Jesus Christ so he could preach the gospel far and wide so that all the nations of the earth would come into obedience to Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. But then again at the end, in chapter 16, he says that all of this was revealed in the prophetic scriptures, which is what we're seeing as we go through the Old Testament. He says that it's by the prophetic scriptures that the gospel is made known to all the nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. So here you can see that even the Apostle Paul knew what his apostolic mission was all about. It was designed to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies about how Jesus would be king of all nations. And of course, Paul knew that better than anyone else because he was assigned to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And so he understood that. Now, let me give you a few more passages. As we make our way through the Old Testament, these are highlights. But think about Psalm 2. Psalm 2. And one of the things you need to see here is that after the resurrection of Jesus, this is what God means when he says, this day I have begotten you. It's not his eternal generation from the bosom of the Father that he's talking about. He's actually talking about the day of his resurrection. He is begotten from the dead, okay? And you know that because in Acts chapter 13, that's what Paul says. But notice that after the resurrection of Jesus, God sets him up as his anointed king. He puts him on what he calls his holy hill or his holy mountain of Zion. And then he says to him, you are my son, This day I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. One of the things that Dr. Greg Bonson used to say when he taught through this particular passage is, God is telling Jesus to ask for the nations and he says, if you ask, I will give them to you. And then Dr. Bonson would often say, do you really think that Jesus forgot to ask? The answer is no. The answer is no. Jesus did not forget to ask. Psalm 2 gives a warning to the kings of the earth that if they don't bow down and kiss the son, then he'll smash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. And so in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, the Lord says, Behold, my servant shall be high and lifted up. This is the father talking about the son. He shall be high and lifted up. That's the ascension. And he says, and he shall sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths at him. In other words, this one who would be put to death would be begotten again from the dead. He would be seated upon the throne of God and he would receive all the nations of the world as his inheritance and possession. And the result would be that the kings of this earth will shut their mouths at him. And the ones that don't will be judged by the king himself. It makes sense then that in the Great Commission, Jesus picks up on all of this language, all of these different threads, and he confirms that those things are truly being fulfilled in and through him. He says, all authority has been given to me, not just in heaven, but in heaven and on the earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. As the nations observe all things that Christ has commanded, the scriptures are being fulfilled. This is the obedience of the nations to the faith of Jesus Christ. His word becomes their law. His gospel is their good news. But going back to the questions that I I sort of posed at the beginning, let me just address two of those questions that, that allows us to sort of build on what I've laid down already. The first question is, when will all of this happen? When will all of this happen? I've already hinted at it. Many of us already know the answer. But let me pose the question this way. Will it be when Jesus Christ returns from heaven and sets up his kingdom for a thousand years on the earth as our premillennialist brothers claim? Or will it be sometime during this present age? The answer is the latter of those two propositions. And we know that because the Bible says that Jesus Christ is already on the throne of his kingdom. Jesus is ruling and reigning right now. He's not waiting for his kingdom to come. He's not waiting to be given dominion over all the earth as if it would come in some distant future. Over and over again, the Bible confirms that when Jesus died, God raised him from the dead. And what did he do? He seated him at his own right hand. That is, he sat down on the throne of the universe. Now, two passages in particular show this. Uh, The first passage is Psalm 110. And just an interesting piece of trivia is that Psalm 110 is the passage of the Old Testament that is quoted the most in the New Testament. So the, the New Testament writers, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, thought this passage was very, very important. And it is. Because it says that one day God would sit Jesus at his own right hand to rule out of Zion. He says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Now, in the New Testament, Peter makes it very clear that this prophecy was fulfilled in the resurrection and ascension of Jesus into heaven. And what's more, he shows that when Jesus sat down at God's right hand, that also fulfilled all of the prophecies that said that Jesus would assume the throne of his father, David. So the throne of God and the throne of David are really one and the same throne. This is very, very important. Listen to how Peter develops this in Acts chapter 2. Speaking to his Jewish brothers, he says, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried and his tomb is with us to this very day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses." 
Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord, that is King, and Christ. That's Peter's explanation of how all these things are fulfilled. So it's very, very important that you know that Jesus Christ is already on the throne. Because that tells you that when John and Jesus said that the kingdom of God was at hand, they were telling the absolute truth. They didn't have their timeline off. The kingdom of God is the reign of Jesus Christ, and that reign is happening right now. Well, then a second question comes up, and that is, how is it that we don't see the nations right now in obedience to the kingdom of God? Now, how is it that we look around the world and we see all of this disaster, all of the debauchery, all of the depravity, all of the rebellion on the part of the kings of this earth? And I think the answer to that is at least twofold. First of all, I would encourage you, do not underestimate the progress that the kingdom of God has already made in this world in the last 2,000 years. I would say that if you want to get a clear biblical and historical perspective of that, of the progress of God's kingdom, uh, you should read a book by D. James Kennedy called What If Jesus Had Never Been Born? That's a great book because it shows that the birth of Christ was was like a stone that was dropped into a still pond and the ripple effects went out powerfully so that many of our institutions that we enjoy today in medicine, education, even government and politics, have been transformed simply by the coming of Jesus Christ into this world. But the second thing I would say, and this is even more important, is that our theology has to come from the exegesis of Scripture and not from the headlines of the mainstream media. It might be true that the work of the kingdom is still in progress. It might be true that the progress is not a constant that it's affected by seasons of decline, seasons of setbacks. But I would say that none of that should shake our confidence in what the scriptures actually teach. And notice that in the passages that we just looked at, we saw that Jesus is in fact already on the throne. His reign is already underway, but also notice that it says that his reign will and must continue until God puts all of the enemies of Jesus Christ under his feet. He says, sit here at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You should also know that the Apostle Paul picks up that promise in 1 Corinthians 15, and he gives us a timeline that we can work with. He says there in a discussion about the resurrection of the body, you remember that? He says that the resurrection will come at the very end of history. But it can't come just yet, Paul says, because Jesus has more work to do. He has more enemies to conquer. He says that when the end comes, he will deliver the kingdom back to his father. That means he has the kingdom now, and in the end, he will deliver this kingdom back to God. 
And when is that? He says, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. That right there is very, very powerful because Paul is grabbing Psalm 110 and he's showing that Psalm 110 will be fulfilled and then the end will come when the dead are raised. Now, someone one time asked me, what exactly is post-millennialism? And the answer is Psalm 110 and 1 Corinthians 15.25. Jesus Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That is what post-millennialism is. And so you can talk all day about being an optimistic ah-mill. As long as you can affirm what the Bible teaches, we're good to go. And the Bible shows that Jesus Christ is on the throne right now, and he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. And until he brings all the nations to the obedience of the faith, he will not return from heaven. If you can affirm that, then we're good to go. So now going back to Herod, we can see that Herod understood what the scriptures taught. Herod understood the implications, the ramifications of the birth of this particular child. The passage that we're looking at today celebrates the birth of a new king. And as it does, notice some of the key elements in this prophecy. It says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. What government? The government of the whole world, actually. Uh, This child is the son of God. This child is the king of the world. This child is then given a whole series of significant names and titles. Isaiah says his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God showing his deity, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. So just to emphasize the post-millennial nature of this prophecy, notice what Isaiah says about the success of this king as well, this Prince of Peace upon whose shoulders uh, the government will rest. He says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forevermore. Notice that this is David's rightful heir. This is Shiloh from the tribe of Judah and from the line of David. Also notice that he rules with judgment and justice. This is why Herod was so afraid. This is not a king who tolerates unrighteousness. Also notice the duration of his reign. Not sometime in the distant future, but from the time he is born to the end of world history. Isaiah says that this child who is born, this son who is given, will have the government upon his shoulders from this time forth and forevermore. And then finally notice that the whole time the kingdom is making progress. He says, and of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. This congregation is about as post-millennial as it gets. Just like Daniel saw that little stone cut out without hands falling from heaven, smashing the kingdom of Rome in the foot of the statue of the beast, and then growing from there into a mountain, 
that covered the entire face of the earth. Just like Jesus said that the kingdom of God is like a little mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds that gets planted in the ground and then grows up and becomes the biggest tree in the garden. Just like he said that the kingdom of God is like a measure of yeast that's mixed into a batch of dough. By mixing it in there and letting it grow, the outcome is that eventually the whole batch is a leavened batch of dough. All of this speaks to the growth and permeation of the kingdom of God in and through the kingdoms of this world. So that just as the angel said in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The very last thing Isaiah says in our text is that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. It seems to me that right there, uh, he puts the seal of a guarantee on this promise. It's not just that the Lord would be pleased if all of this would be fulfilled, maybe, but the Lord sees to it that all of these things will come to pass according to his word, just, just as he's promised us. And notice that he doesn't see to it merely from a cold and static divine disposition. Uh, he brings these things to pass because he's full of passion for the glory of his son. The father is full of passion for the glory of his son. It says that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And so in the final analysis, we can say that Herod had a good reason to be worried about the future of his dynasty. Unless he was willing to repent of his sins and submit to the crown rights of this child, both he and his kingdom would be destroyed. And as a matter of fact, that's exactly what happened. Today, there is no more Herodian dynasty. It's gone. But Christ is still on his throne. And so, congregation, every year when we celebrate the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ into the world, these are the kinds of things that we need to keep in mind. And we need to remember that his birth was no ordinary birth. His life was no ordinary life. His death was no ordinary death. His resurrection and ascension to God's right hand was anything but an ordinary event. So let us then remember that Jesus is the Son of God and the Son of Man, that he is both our Savior and our King, and let that produce in us, in our hearts and in our minds, a hope for the future of this world. Let us remember that no matter what it looks like from the perspective of our own limited experience, God says that one day he shall have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Amen.